Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is very special. It is the author of the book, Fragmented, A Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American Healthcare. Dr. Ilana Yurkowitz, who is currently a practicing physician, uh, uh, who's a medical oncologist, actually, but is doing primary care for cancer patients. I mean, this is just amazing and fascinating. And she is an investigative journalist. She's written a lot before, but it is her first book talking about the healthcare system and how fragmented it is and what can we do to fix it. Look, Folks, before you start judging right away, oh, it's another healthcare book, oh, it's another healthcare book, it is a very different kind of a healthcare book. It is a book that I started reading it, and it got me hooked. I read it from cover to cover. It is a storytelling. There's a lot of stories in the book about patients. If you are a physician, you are going to identify exactly with this book because you're going to picture yourself in the exam room. You're going to picture yourself talking to these patients. You're going to picture yourself dealing with the electronic medical records and, and being upset about what's going on. If you are a patient or a family member, <clears throat> you are going to identify with what happened. And in fact, Dr. Yurkowitz shares a very personal story about her dad who suffered from a sudden cardiac uh, arrest. And thankfully, he made it but you're gonna identify as to what actually you would do when you are on the other side, when you are a patient, when you are a caregiver, when you are a family member. The book is amazing. It's a fascinating tale about what's going on in the healthcare system today. And what's more important is Dr. Yurkowitz offers us several points of how we can possibly fix it. Uh, we can't really fix everything, right? We can't fix everything, but there are certain things in our control that we can fix, certain things that are not in our control, we should strive to work on fixing. And by listening to this podcast, you'll be able to understand what Dr. Yurkowitz thinks. I enjoyed this book tremendously. I loved it. I recommend it for everyone. You can find it anywhere you actually consume books on Amazon uh, and, and anywhere else. Uh, the book is Fragmented by Dr. Ilana Yurkowitz, who is currently at Stanford, and it is available everywhere, and I have the privilege of interviewing the author herself on Healthcare Unfiltered. Before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Yurkowitz, I'd like to plug the podcast. You can find it anywhere you consume podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, because this way other colleagues and other friends and other people will find the podcast easily. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to it and, and, and like the episode. And also check out my website, shadinabhan.com. While at it, <clears throat> also check out my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. Without further ado, the author of Fragmented, Dr. Ilana Yurkowitz on Healthcare Unfiltered. I have to admit, Ilana, we'll do a quick intro, but I got to tell you, I was not that excited to read another book about healthcare because we all know like there's so many issues in healthcare, but you got me. The minute I opened the book and I started reading it, I'm like, damn, I like this. I'm going to keep reading it. So you got me. You got the hook right. Um, but let's start by uh, just getting to know you a little bit, you, a little bit more. Um, 
who you are, where you practice, what you do, because you do have a fascinating career. And curious, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, well, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me and for the kind words about my book. So I'll tell you a little bit about me and my career. So I am a medical oncologist by training, as I know you are as well. So um, I have done all of my training actually at Stanford. I did my internal medicine residency at Stanford, then stayed on for a fellowship in oncology and hematology, and then joined the faculty where I did something a little bit different. I actually opened a primary care practice with a focus on cancer patients and cancer survivors as a way to try to combat some of the fragmentation in healthcare that is gonna be the subject of this conversation today. And at the same time, in addition to my medical career, I've been a writer, I've been a medical journalist for over a decade, and I've been writing about science and medicine since actually before I went to medical school. And I always knew I wanted to combine both careers. I've had an early interest in trying to take complex ideas and make them accessible to everyday people. And I think a lot of the skills that I use in medicine, when you explain things to patients and you counsel patients, I use in my journalism career as well, where you're observing complex ideas and you're breaking it down so that people can understand them. And at this point, um, you know, I've written a lot of articles and this is my first book. And I wrote this book fragmented because it is the reality that I have lived in over the last, you know, 10 plus years in medicine. And you're right, there's a lot of books out there about why healthcare is broken. I say in the intro of my book that it's become a cliche at this point to say that healthcare is broken, but I believe the reality of this is both deeper and a lot more specific than the public and political discourse lets on. And there's a unifying diagnosis here. And healthcare is broken because of the most central issue that we're facing. And in my belief, it is that the patient's story is fragmented by design. And what I mean by that is that our system functions to insert gaps into a patient's story so that healthcare workers are constantly working in a state of being partially blindfolded. I, I love that. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna tell you one thing I highlighted here in the book that literally kind of su sums a lot of this up. But I want to go back to the fascinating career choice that you did. Sure. Because I can't think of any medical oncologist I know that has decided to go back and say, I'm an oncologist, but I'm going to do primary care. I was literally blown away to be, I mean, I'm being very honest because this was, yeah. I, I got, must be not easy. What, what got through it? Like what made you decide I'm not going to prescribe chemotherapy and all of this. I'm going to focus on something else. Yeah, I think I'm the only person in the history of my fellowship <laughs> Probably announced at our fellowship graduation, we were talking about next steps, that I was going to be a primary care doctor. <laughs> um, and so I I, I'll put it this way. Um, there were gaps that I saw over and over and over, both in my residency and in fellowship. And I went into oncology because I liked taking care of patients with cancer um, I liked the medical complexities of it, and I also liked, enjoyed, and appreciated the psychosocial complexities of taking care of people when they were very, very sick with cancer. And I thought being an oncologist would allow me to be a primary doctor 
for patients with cancer, where you kind of, you're treating the cancer, but you're also treating the whole person. I think there are some oncologists who can do that. Um, and I think our system though, however, is not structured to allow oncologists to necessarily always do that. And what I mean by that is I saw that oncologists were very much specialists who focused on the treatment for the cancer. And if someone developed hypertension as a result of one of the treatments they were getting or hypothyroidism, you know, some oncologists would treat that, but often they would say, go back to your primary doctor. And then they would go back to their primary doctor and their primary doctor would say, whoa, 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 you're on chemotherapy. I don't know anything about this. Go back to your oncologist. And so patients would fall into that hole in the middle. And that's why I decided to do my, my epiphany actually was that the answer was not on the oncology quote unquote side, but on the primary care side, you know, you can do cancer survivorship as an oncologist, but you can also do cancer survivorship in a primary care role. And if I really wanted to be the primary doctor for patients with cancer, the answer was in primary care, but that required doing something a bit different, um, which was creating this separate practice where my focus and the majority of my patients are those who have survived cancer anywhere from a stage one diagnosis 20 years ago to living with metastatic disease today. And while I don't prescribe the chemo anymore, I get to do everything else. I get to treat yeah. the long-term and late effects from the treatment and all of their other internal medicine issues. And I feel like it gives me that holistic ability to take care of patients with cancer that I was seeking from the beginning. Yeah, and throughout the book, actually, I mean, for folks who uh, are reading the book and they should read it, I mean, there's a lot about primary care. You do comment several areas about the importance of primary care and kind of like being that link. And, you know, I'll, there's a story that I, I was just fascinated with, which uh, we'll talk about in a little bit. But I got to read for, this is in your introduction. Mm -hmm. And I love that, these three liners. And what you said here, you're talking about healthcare and about patients and all that. And you say, the result is that being a doctor means working in a constant state of being partially blindfolded, grasping at bits and pieces of a patient's narrative to try to craft a coherent whole. I mean, this is, this is any physician who's ever practiced can relate to this. And from there, you've decided to focus on three things. Like you, you divide your book into three things. Uh, why did you choose... These, because you could have gone gazillion ways, right? I mean, yeah. unfortunately, uh, you know, healthcare is uh, the gift that keeps on going. But you chose three main topics. What made you decide on these three? Yeah, and this was a good exercise. Writing this book was a good exercise for me to unpack exactly where those breakpoints are. So I divided the book into three sections. The first section is called the data dig. The second is lost to follow up. And the third is the stories we tell ourselves. And very broadly, the first section is about how we fragment data within our healthcare system. And so I have chapters that address how data vanishes, medical records vanish when patients transfer from one healthcare facility to another. A chapter about who owns the medical story. Is it fundamentally the patients or is it fundamentally the healthcare systems? And then a chapter about how even within one electronic healthcare record-keeping system, data is still fragmented. The second section is about follow-up. And very simply, what I mean by that is that medicine is very rarely a one-and-done situation. It sounds very obvious to us, but a doctor must be able to see their patients 
and patients must be able to follow up with their doctors. And so the whole second section is about how we've designed systems that prioritize new patient visits over follow-ups and create a system where primary care is, is devalued um, and people don't have a regular doctor that they can turn to for ongoing medical issues. And then the third section is about culture. It's about how actually fragmentation can come from what we're taught in medicine as doctors and how sometimes our mindsets can actually um, train us to think about patient stories as slices. And part of that has to do with specialization and how we've gotten more and more subspecialized in medicine. And a joke I heard from a colleague is that we've learned more and more about less and less until we know absolutely everything about nothing. Um, and how our mindsets in medicine can actually lead to fragmentation as well. So data, follow-up, and mindsets are the three ways I divided this up. And I did that to show that, well, first of all, this is a very complex issue. There are a lot of layers that converge to create fragmented healthcare. And it's not, if we solve one thing, we're still going to have these other issues. And so I was trying to unpack all of the things we can do um, both on a systems level, but as well as individuals currently just working in the broken system as it is, knowing that we're not going to be able to solve everything at once. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it is, it is fascinating when you, when you, when you put it this way in terms of how you can actually focus on these three elements, because, because some of this is almost like our own creation. I mean, um, and, and what I loved about the book as I was reading it, there's a lot of, you're a very, very, very good storyteller. I mean, as somebody who reads a lot of books, uh, I can tell you there, we all know, and as a journalist, obviously, you had to tell a story so people can read the article. But writing a journal article is very different than writing a book. Yes. So I guess the two questions I, I, came to mind as I was reading this is how much do you have to do original research versus just, you know, you're just recounting some patient stories and you're reflecting on them because there's a lot of that versus some original research where you had to look at percentages, statistics, and all of that. And, and then the other piece, you know, what what was the main differences between writing like, you know, an investigative article, maybe a 2,000 word versus a book of maybe 70, 80,000 words? Yeah, so both very good questions. I would say to answer the first question, the story is, the, the book is narrative driven, but part of the great enjoyment in putting all these stories together was then doing the research and finding statistics and understanding how we got how we got here. So I think I, I made it intentionally narrative driven because that's what people relate to. And like you said earlier, most doctors, you know, you read the intro of this book and you say, duh, I've experienced yeah. this. This is so <laughs> obvious. Um, and actually, most chronically ill patients who interact with the healthcare system would also say, well, yes, of course, it's so fragmented. This is what I live. Um, but I tell I, I made it narrative driven because it's the way to convince everybody else um, that this is the central issue facing healthcare. But narratives are not enough. Um, and so then I started doing original research to unpack how we got here. And so part of that research, for example, looked into why our electronic health systems are so scattered where we have hundreds of different vendors and why they don't necessarily share information with each other and how we got to a place where even within one electronic system, 
you have to click 4,000 tabs just to find one MRI that you're looking for. And so the research gave me that robust backdrop to understand the why piece of it. The narratives conveyed, this is where we are. This is how broken it is. Look how bad it is on the ground in real life. And then the research gave me the why piece. So then I could focus on coming up with some solutions and putting ideas out there for directions that we need to go. And so I enjoyed combining the narratives and the research. And then in terms of how is this invest uh, different from an investigative piece, when I first approached the book, I did write down what every chapter would say. And I told myself, this is just going to be nine chapters. So it's nine investigative pieces. That's manageable. I can do that because I've written these before. So I just have to do this nine times. Um, it is different though, right? So I think that's how I approach the first draft. And then you go back to the beginning and you need these ongoing through lines. Otherwise you lose the reader and it needs to all connect. Um, and so in every chapter, I do make an original point. Um, I convey some way of how I believe the healthcare system is fragmented, but I connect the characters. Um, I call them characters. They were based on real people, but I de-identified information. I connect them from one chapter to the next and uh, you know, make, make it clear how each chapter conveys how healthcare is fragmented. So by the end of it, um, it's not like nine investigative pieces. It's one cohesive argument. No, you do that very well. I mean, there, there are, like I said, storytelling, but then you can actually see some of the characters moving on through chapters, which was really very nice. So I, I want to talk a little about each segment just a little bit, and I don't want to give everything out to, to readers because they got to go and, and read this book because it's very enjoyable. But I want to talk a few things about each one of the, the things. So for, for the data, the data thing, I have to tell you what struck me is I forgot which chapter you were writing this, but you talk about how Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, all of like the big shots, right? These are the big tech people trying to solve this. And somehow they couldn't. I mean, somehow I, what I got from this is they all tried and it didn't happen. And I'm thinking, still you know, trying. Yeah. I know, but like I'm thinking, well, if Google and Amazon and Apple can't figure it out, I don't know. Are we hopeless case? Like, you know, what's going on here? I mean, no. yeah. What, what did you, when, when you researched what they were doing, like, what did you find out? So it's not hopeless. And the reason I feel it's not hopeless is because fundamentally what we're facing is actually not a technologic problem, but a problem of bureaucracy. And so Google and all of these companies, so Google originally tried to get involved in 2008 when they launched Google Health. And their idea was to create a personalized health record that people can have on their phone where they input important information about themselves, like their vaccines and their medical history. And then they can be that source of continuity from doctor to doctor. And it failed because people weren't all that interested in doing this. Um, and primarily healthy people didn't feel the need to have all of their health data organized in one place. And then along the way, Google tried again. They tried again in 2019. And I write in the book about um, their, their collaboration with Ascension Health um, called Project Nightingale, where... Ascension Health released um, health data to Google so that Google could create this tool that allowed them to better search the electronic health records. And then it kind of blew up because people got really upset. And they said, did Google have permission? Why wasn't this opt-in? You're releasing critical 
you know, private patient data to a third party, a big tech company. And so these companies have faced a lot of bureaucratic obstacles and red tape and getting involved in healthcare. And from my research, what I learned is for a long time, they just didn't even want to touch it. They didn't want to touch it because of the red tape, not because it was a technology problem that they couldn't solve. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, we're talking about EMR. Um, look, I mean, let's just face it. The EMR ship has sailed. We're going to live with EMR. I mean, it's not like, you know, we, yes. and I think, and I think, and I think, Personally, this is my own opinion. I think on balance, I think the net benefit of EMR is much more than the net negative. I you know, I, I mean I, you know, you know, at least I can read the typing versus the handwriting. But I, I got, you know, you have several stories of this. I'm gonna share with you a story happened to me, which it, it resonated when I was reading your book. You know, I was seeing a patient and I was trying to be cost effective. You know, I'm like, I'm gonna just put you know, be cost effective. This patient pretty much needed a PSA and a chest X-ray because he went to some other hospital and all this. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to order a chest X-ray. I don't need to order the PSA. And I kid you not, after an hour, I'm like, screw it. I'm getting a chest X-ray and I'm getting a PSA. I can't deal with this anymore. And you talk about this. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a lot of this about this. And this is like, you know, I'm like, I, I can't deal with this. I've like other patients waiting and I can't keep waiting all of these things. Yes. So I don't know. How do we, how, what did you find out in terms of research? How can we connect EMRs together, hospitals together? Because, uh, you know, we're busy. Everybody's busy and seeing patients, and you can't keep waiting on a chest x ray and a PSA to make a decision. You knew the patient had it last week. Like you, I, I really tried. And then I literally said, I don't care. That's right. And we are constantly reinventing the wheel. And I talk in the book both about errors of commission and also errors of omission. So errors of commission, meaning literally repeating tests and scans and even sometimes procedures because of exactly what happened to you, where you're weighing the, the cost of digging and digging and waiting and trying to get outside records. And again, sometimes just even digging through your own EMR um, versus the cost of repeating tests. And this happens so frequently. Um, and so I think, I mean, it's a very complex issue, of course. And I agree with you, actually, that the EMRs, on the whole, I also feel like they have made things better. It is better than writing, scribbling on a piece of loose leaf paper and passing that along and not being able to read anything. And of course, data went missing when you were using paper records. It's not like that was this holy grail um, and it was a perfect time when everything was well organized. Now we have access to more information because of the EMRs. We have big data. We have hundreds of different potassium levels, you know, on a patient over the course of maybe 10 years, if that's how long they've been in the system. But we have to be able to connect that in a way that's meaningful to providers. And so you probably know about meaning, meaningful use. Um, so, you know, that was the original, the federal agency, the CMS um, behind the EMRs came up with this idea of meaningful use where when the big shift from paper records to EMRs was happening, they set standards known as meaningful use that hospitals and healthcare organizations had to follow in order to get funding. But that meant that they were writing things that were redundant or useless just because they were trying to follow the standards, the checklist. And so they were, you had a comment, let's say on someone's smoking status and family history, whether they were there for a cold or end of life care. And when you're saying, when you're repeating that kind of nonsense that has nothing to do with the medical issue at hand, 
over and over and over again, we've gotten to the point that most doctors now joke that meaningful use is meaningless abuse. We have a system where there's so much litter. The electronic ecosystem is now just littered with so much nonsense that doesn't apply to the situation at hand that even if all of it is technically there, like that's the crazy thing. Even if you have all the patient's data, you can't find the thing that you're looking for, the thing that's most important to the situation at hand. And so where we're going now is we have to organize how we how we convey data within EMRs. And a key part of that is who's at the table. So when all these decisions were being made of how to organize EMRs, um, a big part of it was for billing. It wasn't doctors and nurses sitting at the table saying, what do we need to help patients? It was how do we make this simple to convey to CMS that we're doing what we need to do so that we can get reimbursed. It was for billing, not for patient care. And so as we think about how to reorganize our EMRs, just going back to the basics of who's making this decision, these decisions and who's giving input um, leads us back to healthcare providers being the ones who have to be at the decision desk for any progress to be made. There is one element I wished you elaborate on a little bit more in your book. Um, I felt it was a little bit missing. If I, like you mentioned it here about the payer's impact on what we do. You talk about it here and there, but I think your point is well taken. A lot of stuff that we do is simply to get the reimbursement and has really no impact on patient care. And how do we get payers to the dialogue table because ultimately, you know, let's face it, they really control a lot of the chips. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I try to address it, and it's a, it's a very complicated issue. And so the payers are responsible for so much here. So I already talked about how they were responsible for how our EMRs are organized. They're also responsible for why we get reimbursed higher to see new patients compared to follow-ups. And that leads to a system where people can't get in with their primary doctor because every doctor is being overloaded with new patients and we pay short shrift, you know, literally and metaphorically to follow up. And the payers are also responsible for why most primary care doctors have 15 minutes to see a patient because everything outside that 15 minute slot is not considered billable time. So time spent answering messages, time spent reviewing test results, time spent communicating with specialists, none of that is considered billable. Payers won't pay for it. And so if your incentive structure is just stacked to see as many patients as possible and to see as many new patients as possible, we end up with exactly what we have, which is doctors seeing patients in 15-minute slots the average primary care doctor has 2,000 plus patients, right? And the existing patients can't even access that doctor. And that's within primary care, which is supposed to be the most holistic of all specialties. And so it's happening in every specialty, but I bring up primary care just exactly for that reason. And so the payers are a crucial part of this. And the reason I think if you feel like I didn't go quite deep enough into the book is because I feel like this is the hardest issue to tackle. And I divide up the solutions in a way that I feel like there are some things that are just low-hanging fruit that we can solve right now. And there are, there are other things that will have to wade through the fights of partisan policy change. And that's much harder. And so 
I didn't want to be too pessimistic in this book, but there's no solutions. There are things we can be doing right now. There are technological solutions that we can be implementing right now. There's changes in culture and how individuals work within the system that we can implement right now. I feel like the payer issue is going to be a harder beast to tackle. Yeah, I mean, I felt, you know, you know, again, um, I, I did sense to, as I kept reading, is you really wanted to focus more on the things that we have a little bit more control over. Because, I mean, frankly, uh, the payer issue is almost like a policy and politics thing and requires probably some lobbying and all of that thing. Within that uh, data thing, you you really talk about um, and and the follow up thing. You you talk about a story that was very that in, intrigued me about um, an immigrant that comes in from a country and gets diagnosed with a form of cancer and and uh, I mean I don't know if I was should cry or laugh in your introduction of him. You were talking about how many children he has, grandchildren he has, and they say, and 31 doctors. Yes. That was I supposed mean, to be funny. Yeah. It, it, I mean, this yeah. is like, oh my God. I, I, but I could imagine, right? Um, how yeah. did we get to the point where anybody should have 31 doctors? Like, really? And that story was so sad in the end because every one of those doctors was working so hard and doing so much to take care of him. You know, there were no bad actors in this story. It was a story of bad outcomes with no bad actors. And every doctor was perfectly managing their slice. And part of the reason we got here is the emphasis on specialization and subspecialization that we talked about earlier, where now you can be accredited in 130, you can get board certified. I believe it's 135 different specialties and then even after fellowship, you can do another fellowship and then you can do another fellowship so that the average doctor is in training for something like, you know, 10 to 14 years before they become an attending physician. People do that because it leads to greater financial rewards often, um, and it leads to more respect within the medical hierarchy. But we've gotten to a place where we're so sub subspecialized and we have so many more specialists than generalists that someone coming in for a new cancer can end up with 31 different doctors. Now that's that's issue number one. I will say issue number two here is something that sounds extremely mundane, but is really important when it comes to how we structure healthcare. And that's the mundane issue of scheduling. And I have a whole chapter on 28 hour calls and how scheduling actually really can make- That was my next question, by the continuity, way. But we'll get there, we'll get there. I will just say, going back to the the story of the um, the, the immigrant grandfather, part of the issue was, was that doctors were rotating. They you know were on for 24 hours and they were off. And that is something that I am hopeful that we can change. We have control over scheduling within the medical community. And that is part of what I would consider the low hanging fruit of fragmentation. And he didn't need 31 doctors and there could have been small changes in how um, his doctors were rotating on and off service that would have fostered a lot more continuity in his care. But at some point in his story, he looked to, he looked you in the eyes and he said, you're my doctor. Yes. And mm -hmm. I said, I kind of was caught off guard. Um, and I, I even write in the book that he asked me so many hard questions but in the end, the hardest question that I felt like he asked me was, am I his doctor? And I said, yes and no. It was very complicated. I was his doctor for now. 
What does yeah. that mean? What does that mean after he leaves the hospital? Look, I mean, in, in reading some of these stories, I want you to be our doctor. I mean, you're, you're just there's a lot of compassion in what in, in what you convey. It's it's true, but um, but but I think in his story, there's so many things within that one story that you you tackled and talked about. I mean, you talked about the issue about immigrants. Maybe English is not their first language. Difficult. You talked about uninsured. And the Affordable Care Act, you danced around this a little bit about the ACA and what the impact of this on the uninsured, and you talked about the working hours. There's a lot within one story, but I want to I wanna focus on two of them. One is the, the working hours issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much on this to talk about. And I think the, first, the two questions I had in mind is one, how difficult is, if you put on your scholarly hat, how difficult it is to do research on working hours in general? It's not really easy. And number two, I think we tend to be extremes. Either people have to work 36 and 48 hours constantly, or they have to do 10 hours and they get a, then they have to go and, and leave. Uh, I don't, I feel like we are unable to strike that balance. Tell me about your research on the working hours. Where do you think we are? Where are the opportunities? Because this story really highlights what's going on. Yeah, so I really do delve into the years of research that were done on working hours, which were very fascinating to me because I did many 28-hour calls myself before I delved into this research and figured out that there actually was a lot of up and ups and downs over the years and how people felt about them. And so it, it has been researched, and I have opinions on that. And I share that in the chapter as well, that some of the research that was done um could be argued was not the most ethical research, actually, because you are experimenting on human beings. So a lot of the research that was done was on resident physicians who, as you know, are kind of the lowest physicians on the totem pole. You need to go to residency in order to become a practicing, licensed, attending physician. And there were studies that randomized resident physicians to working 16 hours versus 24 hours plus and 24 hours plus, they often said plus four hours to maintain continuity. So it's really 28 hours. And so you can argue that some of the way these this these research studies were structured, um, you know, was kind of questionably, it was kind of questionable, you know, morally questionable um, that you were doing research on resident physicians who, I mean, you can say, sure, you could say no and just not go to residency, but are they a vulnerable population in a way? I mean, I would actually argue, yes, um, they can't really say no if you want to become a practicing attending physician. And so that's where we got a lot of this data. We got this data on randomizing residents. And the data, um, the research was constructed in such a way that they were often asking a question, um, are 28-hour calls worse than 16-hour calls. Not that they were better, but that they were a lot worse for patient care. And so you can also argue that even if you get a positive result, saying that 28-hour calls don't lead to more deaths, more morbidity in patients, well, does that convince you that you would want to do 28-hour calls instead of 16-hour calls? All you're saying is that they're no worse, not that they're better. And so I also just question the design of the research studies. So I question the ethics and I question the design of it. And that's how we got to a place where we are now, which is that in 2017, the ACGME looked through all of this data, and that's um, you know the council that decides residency working hours. They looked through all this data, and they came to a conclusion that 28-hour calls 
were safe. They were not a lot worse than 16-hour calls. And so they removed the restrictions that said that, that you know, interns, first-year residents um, had to cap at 16 hours. And the last I, I reached out to them, um, you know, when I was re- researching my book, they said that there were no intended changes going forward. And that's probably where we're going to be for a while. I think but it's an opportunity, I presume, um, you know, to look like at real world data, you know, a few years down the road and just it's will be retrospectively looking back at uh, the, the question is, I don't know what the endpoints would be the outcomes. I mean, uh, is it medical errors? Is it fatigue? Like, I don't know even how you I don't know how you even design a study. I mean, they, yeah, I mean, they looked at errors. They looked at patient mortality. They also looked at things at self-reported resident um, fatigue, as well as their perceived education levels. And so, you know, they you, you can argue these outcomes as well. But just taking a step back from the research question for a second, what I would say is the, the reason I included this in the book at all was that something as mundane as scheduling actually can really make or break continuity. And I think it's very ironic because one of the big arguments in favor of 28-hour shifts, so again, doctors working 28 consecutive hours, is the continuity argument. And it sounds so obvious. It sounds almost like a tautology. Like if you work more hours, you'll have more continuity with your patients. You're not coming and going, and you're seeing their story play out. But what I showed by going through one of my shifts and what happens next is how 28-hour 28 hour calls, in my opinion, actually fragment those stories because you end up with this rotating cast of doctors where they have extreme authority over the patient's story for one day and one night, but then they're gone the next. And so there was no continuity actually from day to day. There was continuity over hours. There was not continuity over days. And I show about how big things can slip through the cracks when the responsibility of who's actually in charge day to day over that patient's story um, is diffused between different people. Yeah, no, I mean, it's for, for sure. I mean, you also talk about the, uh, in, in page 106, I, I highlight this, it says, if the intent is seamless continuity of care, as the ACGME calls it, I don't want to leave my patient in the middle of his case, my shifts, and, and you go through it. So you just kind of comment on this. This is the goal, seamless continuity of care, but it has not achieved that. No, no, I feel like it's achieved the opposite. There, there's a lot of things that we we think that we're doing good, and we just don't know whether we're doing or not. I mean, one example of this, frankly, is, and you also talk about this, is the immediate release of certain test results to patients. I mean, so that decision has been made, right? Uh, and you know, you'll tell us uh, how it was made and why, but. Uh, do we even know if it's good or bad? Uh, I mean, you you wear two hats, the medical oncologist and the the primary care. So obviously there's so many nuances to a CAT scan, incidental findings. What did you find out about this immediate release of, uh, of results to patients? Because you know, this is like literally almost like as divided as the country can be politically, this is where people are in, in medical community. Yeah. And so this this came from the Cures Act. It was called the Final Rule, and it was implemented in 2021. And it was essentially done as a way to combat data blocking. And so before this, it was really, really hard and roundabout for patients to get access to their records, right? And so as you can imagine, that is that is also a huge problem when patients need to be on hold with medical records departments 
for three hours when they're tied to IV poles, um, just because there's no way to seamlessly get their own data. And so that's that's why the final rule was implemented. It was a way to combat that data blocking to patients with the understanding and the respect that patients are the ones who are ultimately responsible um, for their own story and entitled to their own health data. The more complicated question that came up was about timing, just like you mentioned. And so the default was immediate release. And so for some things, no big deal. You know, there are certain blood test results, no big deal. But things like pathology reports, biopsies, CAT scans, you can see something like a tumor in a CAT scan or a recurrence of cancer that you thought was in remission. And there was an immediate explosion along predictable party lines of how people felt about this, meaning that for the most part, patients and patient advocacy groups said, this is great. I mean, why do you think it's better for a doctor to tell me that my cancer recurred? I would actually much rather do that on my own terms, sitting at home, opening up my computer and finding out myself, like you doctors are too full of yourself that you think it's better, you know, necessarily better for you to break bad news to me than for me to find out bad news on my own. And then kind of on the other hand, most doctors, um, not all, but many doctors were arguing the opposite, that this can create undue anxiety for patients. Our entire job is to put these findings into context and help people navigate next steps so they know how serious something is. And there was a lot of fear that people were going to be concerned about, you know, incidentalomas, things that pop up on scans that aren't actually clinically significant. But if you read the report and you don't have any context, you might panic over. And so I do come down um, saying that I, do, I believe the Cures Act final rule was ultimately a force for good. I think it is positive to share electronically patient data with the very people they concern because they're the, the ones who are ultimately responsible for their own health. However, however, that being said, I think it is also reasonable to change the definition of immediate and give us a little bit of, lean, um, of leeway um, and how long that is so that we doctors can also take the time to come up with a plan and have a conversation with our patients to put into context. And the final thing I'll say about that is that um, for the most part, this is actually what happened in doctor's offices, um, where we do have leeway to decide what exactly immediate means. And so, for example, at a lot of places, blood tests are released in an hour, but CT scans and MRIs are released in two weeks. Um, and two weeks, maybe that's an arbitrary number. You, you know, you can argue that. Should it be seven days? Should it be two weeks? Should it be three days? Fine. Um, but I do think giving us a little bit of time to go through this and put it into context for patients does not constitute data blocking. Patients will ultimately get these results and it just gives us time to be the doctors that we're trained to be um, and, and actually divulge this information in a way that provides context and next steps. And I also think having like a deadline by which you have to release the results forces the physicians to talk to the patient about the test results within that particular time frame. I mean, so I think it's good. So on February 23rd, 2016, things got a little bit more personal um, to you and you were on the other side. And um, it's, I don't get goosebumps easily when I read a book. Uh, and you, you I did. Um, I was cheering for your dad and everything that was going on. And you, you were very honest, raw, and you just described everything that has happened. But you really 
exemplified how difficult it is for us healthcare professionals to be on the other side. And we all have been. It's just not easy. Your dad was critically sick and, and all of this. I guess my question to you about, <clears throat> about this, when you were on the other side, a, for example, did did you know who your dad's doc, doctor was, uh, you know, compared to the other patient that he wasn't sure what the doctor is like? Did you feel, did you experience the same thing? And number two, you do describe an incident of a, a resident or somebody who came in to discuss a CAT scan result, which obviously was not, clearly the resident was not well informed or the physician was not well informed. It made me wonder whether this was because of working hours. I was trying to speculate from your first two segments yeah. into what happened to your dad. Take me through this process because I I mean, I got very emotional reading that story about your dad. Yeah. Um, well, well, thank you for appreciating that. It was the most difficult time of my life. So on February 20, just to give a little bit more context, on February 23rd, 2016, my father had a sudden cardiac arrest, which for you know the lay audience who's listening. He was as close to dying as a person can get without actually being dead. Um, he went into an irregular heart rhythm that caused his heart to stop beating. A team of doctors had to descend on him and do a 20-minute code, which involved chest compressions and uh, nine electric shocks. The code lasted for 20 minutes, and at the end of it, he was critically ill in the cardiac intensive care unit. And he was in the cardiac intensive care unit for a few weeks and then in the hospital for several months because of complications that then ensued following the cardiac arrest. So he was he was critically ill for quite some time. To the first question, I was in a very privileged position coming into this, even though it was the hardest time of my life. I came into it as a doctor who was familiar with the healthcare system. And I think even more than the medical knowledge I had as a doctor was just knowing how to navigate that system. I did know who his doctors were and I knew what each, what the role was that each doctor played. Like I knew when his nephrologist came in that maybe that was the fellow. And then there was also going to be an attending. And I might have to say the same things to both the fellow and the attending for that information to be conveyed. And so I was no stranger to repeating myself. Um, it didn't bother me. Um, you know, I will say I knew that the medical student, to be honest, you know, didn't have much power in this situation. And so I was very privileged um, coming into it. And I was also privileged because my sister is also a doctor. And so there were two of us. And oh, come on, how many patients have that? Um, you know, both of his children were doctors who were advocating for him. And we were by his bedside sometimes 24 hours a day um, all the time because we knew how easily it was for mistakes to happen, even when people were trying their best and for things to slip through the cracks. And so I do write about some things that that caused complications um, in his medical story um, and complications that that could have been preventable if things had been done slightly differently. And so you bring up one example of when, when someone came in and um, basically told us, so my, my, my father had been receiving a sedative drip when he was intubated. And so he was sleeping for days on end and he could not be aroused. And this might've been the hardest part of the whole thing for me, because we didn't know 
was he sleeping because of the sedative drip or was he sleeping because of anoxic brain injury after a cardiac arrest and he would never wake up? And so we were in that limbo for days on end until ultimately we requested a CT scan of his brain. And when the CT scan was done, um, it was a resident who had just rotated on um, who came in and told us what I thought was good news initially. She said the CT scan was normal. And I started crying tears of joy. I hugged my mom who was with me. And then she went on to say, and I'll never forget these words, but I'm looking at the patient and it's not promising. And my mom kind of jumped and she said, what do you mean not promising? And I, I want to be clear. I don't want to blame this doctor. She had just rotated on. I do know that she was coming in the middle of a complicated story where she had not been privy to a lot of information that happened before. So I started asking her questions and for example, questions like, could this be because of the sedative drip? And she wasn't that familiar with the sedative drip, right? And, or, and I asked, could it be because of his kidney injury? And she wasn't that familiar with his kidney injury. So in a way, that was actually very reassuring to me because I said, well, she's just saying that because she doesn't actually know the full story. And if she did know the full story and if she hadn't just rotated on um, in the middle of this very complicated story, and if someone had given her more time to read the chart or organize the chart to make it easier for her to read, she would know some of those details and then maybe she wouldn't have jumped to that conclusion. However, at the same time, working in the system that we have, you know, I will say it was it was a choice to phrase things the way she did. And I reflect on that in the book that if you don't have all the information at your fingertips, it's okay and it's preferred, I think, from a patient standpoint, to be honest and to actually defer giving such a definitive prognosis when you don't even have all the information at your fingertips. I would have much rather her said the truth, which is that I just rotated on. I've been on call now for 10 minutes. Um, I don't know your father's full story. I will do my best to learn his full story. Um, all I can convey right now are the CT scan results. And I would have much preferred that in the end. You know, it's um, uh, genuinely, it was very emotional to, re to read this uh, because I did not know what the outcome would be. Uh, I, When your dad left the hospital after 45 days and went home, I... Um, it was so nice and beautiful to read. Uh, I was very happy to read this. But then you actually do ask a question later on in the book about what, you know, whether this may be a reflection of what happened with your dad. You said, what would you want if your time was short? And uh, you got me thinking as well about myself, about relatives, about family. And I, I don't know, what, what, what sparked that question in your mind? And do you, do you think about that? I mean, do you... How much do you apply about this to your own personal health? I think I probably think about this way more than the average person. Um, it's a question that we ask our patients all the time. And I think for the most part, we ask our patients this because we're trying to nail down what people would want in terms of interventions, right? We want to know, do our patients want chest compressions? Do our patients want intubation? Do they want escalation to the ICU? I don't think that is the ideal way to really be thinking about this question. It's more about your values and what gives you meaning. And then you can make decisions about those details based on what's actually important to you. 
And so I think about this question a lot in, in my own life. I do feel like I try, I strive to live a life where I am really grateful for and appreciating each day that I have, because I think in medicine, we are so acutely aware that it can change in an instant. And knowing that I, I, I think about, I mean, we have no idea how long or the quality of our lives for any of us. And it's just about creating as much meaning as we can in the, in the time that we have. And for me, a lot of the meaning comes from paying it forward from being for be for being there for my patients. And that is what gives my life a lot of meaning. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd like you to, you know, we'll finish up just, I, I just want to, you know, your last chapter was about kind of the trying to articulate the fix. And I was, um, I was, you know, I read it a couple of times. I wasn't clear what the fix is because maybe there is no fix. There's no one pill you could take and fix it, frankly. And and I think you kind of left me wanting for more because I wanted like, well, uh, just you want you a know, sequel. I wanted more solutions. Um, yeah. I think I got two solutions from you, but I wanna. I wanted to elaborate more. Maybe there's more that I did not capture. I. You know, you have a checklist of you're basically asking patients to be their own advocates, and that's totally fine and it's important. Um, I, I think sometimes literacy and issue could be an obstacle for some. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me wonder, for example, if your dad did not have two physicians advocating at their bedside every day, is it possible the outcome could have been different tragically? I don't know the answer to that. Hopefully not, but we don't know. But you talk about the primary care as an integral component of the fix and patient's advocacy and having a list to check to be part of the fix. But I didn't get this, I didn't get the impression what the fix is for the data issue, for example, and things of that nature. So in your own words, after you outlined all of this, what are the top five things that you think are things we could do to fix what what's fragmented? So there, there are a lot of fixes that are outlined and some of them are systemic fixes. So things that we can do for a healthcare system as a whole. And then some of them, like you mentioned, are more on an individual basis. Given that we are where we are, what can patients do to advocate for themselves? So on a systemic level, interoperability, which is a really complicated word, but it's a fancy way of saying we have to reduce data blocking between one electronic vendor to another. We are in a state now where we have hundreds of different vendors. Epic is the main one, but there's hundreds of others. And they are incentivized to keep information organized in their own way, and it's not always shared. And so step one is interoperability, making these, these electronic vendors actually communicate with each other. And sometimes it takes a mandate to do that. You know, it was a mandate in the first place that said paper records had to go to electronic charts. Um, and so it might end up taking that so that we have a truly unified electronic healthcare system. Number two is organizing the data that we have. So we talked a lot about this earlier, that even within one electronic system, data is scattered everywhere. And that is primarily because it was set up for billing and not for patient care. And I want to emphasize that this is not an impossible technological solution. Like we can do things that are way harder technologically then connect potassium levels that are in different tabs in a nice graph that is meaningful for providers, right? And so these solutions are actually happening now. That is one of the promising things. We have entire pit crews of people, sometimes um, doctors who are working on this, 
um, of how to better organize data within our current electronic vendors. So that's number two. I would say number three is a huge investment in primary care for all the reasons we've talked about. Primary care doctors are fundamentally the ones who should be shepherding a patient's full story and safeguarding that story. If there was the doctor equivalent to the patient who's supposed to be doing it, it's the primary care doctor. And for decades, there has been a crisis that has been brewing in primary care where it is systematically underfunded and devalued, um, which means more medical students go into specialties and I don't blame them and I completely understand why. I would say number four, this one is so easy. You don't have to give all of them, by the way. I want to give gotta, all of them. They got to read the book so they can find the solution. I know, I know. It's not giving away all of it. There's nine chapters. Um, number four, because we've talked about this, because it's so easy, eradicating 28-hour shifts um, and focusing on something as mundane as scheduling, again, as making or breaking continuity between one doctor and one patient, whether you're in the hospital or the outpatient setting, these are things we can do right now. And I will say number five has to do with culture and how we think about the stories we tell ourselves about patients. And the story about my dad taught me a lot of this, how people would make quick decisions in the moment, just focusing on one fragment of a patient's story, like the resident who came in and just saw my father sleeping. And just with that one piece of information, decided to prognosticate that he was never going to yeah, wake up. I, I have to tell you, I really got goosebumps reading your dad's story. Ilana, is there another book coming up? I mean, I know you have to enjoy this book first, but uh, you need to write I, more. I, I I plan to. Right now, I'm I'm focusing on this book. Oh, no, no. We have to focus on this book. I yeah. totally know. But uh, congratulations. This is really an amazing book. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I, I hope a lot of people get an opportunity to to read it and listen to this podcast. And it's, I presume it's available everywhere. They can get it anywhere, right? Yes, you can pre-order now. If you go to fragmentedmedicine.com, there's a bunch of links to pre-order and then the book will be in stores July 11th. Okay, well, we're airing this after July 11th. So it's right. already there. Don't it's worry. It's already there. No, Any no, we're... place where you can buy books. Yeah. Well, Ilana, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. It means a lot that you gave me some time to talk about one of my favorite healthcare books uh, in 2023. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for saying that. You asked such insightful questions, and I really appreciated the conversation. Folks, thank you very much for listening, and thanks to Dr. Yurkowitz for spending a lot of time with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. I am very grateful to the opportunity that she provided with my viewers and with my listeners. So thank you, Ilana, for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Truly appreciated. Uh, don't forget, by the way, to let me know uh, how you think I'm doing. You can subscribe to the show, direct message me on at Shadi Nabhan or Instagram, Shadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote by Alexander the Great. I am not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Until next time, take care.